People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among the industry leaders, and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. There has been a lot said about the impact we are making on our environment, and the commercial real estate industry is at times at the forefront of that. This is why we wanted to talk to someone who really understands the impact we're having on our world and who can help us navigate these issues better. Our guest today is Leslie Moulton, President and CEO of ESA, Environmental Science Associates. Her firm employs scientists, planners, historians, archeologists, engineers, designers, and technical specialists to provide critical thinking in the areas of environmental and community planning, analysis and assessment, natural and cultural resources management, environmental restoration and design, and regulatory compliance, which helps guide successful policy development and project planning and deliver enduring projects across the world. For over 50 years, ESA has led the charge on these things, and its finest work is likely just ahead of it. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Leslie, good afternoon. How's it going? Good afternoon, Vlad. Good to talk to you. Uh, yeah, where are you? Where do we find you today? You know what? Today, you're going to find me down in Los Angeles. So okay. I move around our, our uh, constellation of offices, but today it's Los Angeles. Yeah, I've, I've hosted this podcast now for almost two years, and I've usually started off with this you know, question, where are you? And I yeah. feel like I'm always coming to the point of like, should I be asking that? Like, I don't want them to, I don't want my people to feel like, you know, I'm, you know, pri priding into their, you know, private lives. Most of it was because in COVID people were working from home and there were some interesting places. I had one interview that I, you know, somebody was in a car because that was the quietest place that he could find. Well, so, there you go. Yeah. 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 So I'm always no, curious. No, I was thinking, you know, Park City or something, but I don't have anything like that. Just, yeah, just working I, at home from Los Angeles. I Andrews. just interviewed somebody from Park City. So there you go. <laughs> I've been Funny. hearing it's like yeah. fastest growing population because that's, of all of us who can work remote. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So Leslie, um, you know, let's jump into um, into what what you guys do and you know ESA. Tell us a little bit about you know you and your career and sort of um, how how you got to where you are today. Great. Thank you very much. And really appreciate you hosting me. Uh, so my career uh, somewhat tracks, not with the entire history of ESA, but I have been there a good long while. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a product of uh, my high school years during the 70s. So those were very formative. And of course, that was a big time for the environmental movement to get liftoff. Uh, major federal regulations with Clean Air, Clean Water Act. And I have to say, honestly, growing up in Southern California and being at the beach and watching Jacques Cousteau. Uh, 
who brought okay. sort of the wonder of the natural environment into your living room and yep. also was sort of the first person to be out there saying, we need to be concerned about this. So as a young person, I was like, I am completely on board with that. And so I pursued, you know, studies and then professional work that allowed me to work uh, on natural resources and then community resources. So that, that, uh, that definitely propelled me. Uh, and fortunately, uh, colleges were responding with uh, multidisciplinary environmental programs, and I took one of those, and I went to school in the Bay Area. Uh, and of course, that was just a really rich, you know, hotspot of environmental interest and activity. So yeah, and continues say, to be, I would say, right, I mean, and, and continues sure, to be a leader, yeah, a leader yeah. in that. And um, and it's been interesting to work in both parts of the state and then in other parts of the country, and you know, and to understand what a leader. The Bay Area has been for sure. So I joined ESA in the mid '80s. Uh, we had been founded in '69, so I was really, you know, second generation, third generation of ESA. But it was specifically in response to these new environmental uh, regulations, and developers needed to comply. and And actually, you know, when the California Environmental Quality Act was passed, uh, nobody thought it would be that big a deal. They yeah. were like, "Yep." Yep, we'll do these reports. We'll we'll summarize the environmental you know effects. We'll move on. These things will be fifty pages long, and 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 of course, I'm sorry to say they're much longer than that now. Um, but I do think there's been a you know a proliferation of regulations uh, that that developers and cities and agencies and public agencies have to comply with. So ESA is there to to assist those clients. It's like let's. Let's design projects for you that minimize environmental impact. Let's help you get the permits that you need and implement the conditions that you need to and and move you forward. So tell us a little bit about the organization. You know, what, what does a company do? What types of services, you know, areas, geographic and sort of functional where, you, where you're active? Yeah, yeah, perfect. So we're a really broad multidisciplinary environmental consulting firm. Um, we are doing environmental compliance, but we've also moved upstream with our clients to really do upfront environmental planning and strategy with them to take a look at how do we minimize environmental impact so you can minimize your permits, have a more sustainable project. We do environmental engineering, and specifically I mean responding to coastal hazards like sea level rise. Uh, river and wetland restoration. Uh, we do construction monitoring. So we are part of the broad team that's working on the California high-speed rail out there monitoring construction for yep. air quality, water quality, endangered species. Uh, and, and mostly, again, trying to move people and projects towards you know implementation and completion. So we'll do the follow-up mitigation monitoring and really the long-term adaptive management as yeah. well. And yeah. these are obviously all very important uh, parts of the commercial real estate space, not just in California, but you know, West Coast and obviously across the country. I think one of the things that you and I were as we're as we're talking to you know prepare for this interview, you had mentioned that there is quite a bit of legacy. I mean, you guys have been around since the you know late sixties, early seventies, and kind of have seen this evolve. You know, tell us a little bit about that and sort of you know what what differentiates you guys, I guess, from other firms that do similar things. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think there's, uh, you know, at least a couple of things. And one is we really are niche in, in sort of a broad 
architecture, engineering, constructed, you know, construction, AEC industry. So we have really stayed, while we've broadened our services and we're multidisciplinary, we are environmental focused. Uh, and we have a really long history, as you mentioned, and a deep sense of place. And when I say that, we've been working in the areas uh, with our clients for, you know, decades. So, Understanding the literal physical landscape, the social landscape, the political, the regulatory, because all those things come to bear in designing, you know, an effective project that you're actually going to be able to implement. Uh, so we have a great multi-generational workforce, but we have people who have been in this business 20, 30 plus years and can really bring some strategic guidance uh, to our clients. So I think that's I think that's important. And we've sort of Again, broadened our services, but we don't do everything. So sure. we are really quite, you know, niche in in what we apply ourselves to. As you, as you, um, I mean, obviously, I would I would probably argue that some of these regulations in California are maybe, um, you know, the most restrictive, perhaps maybe uh, than than anywhere else in the in the in the country. Would as you now see kind of these companies expanding and doing work in other parts of the, you know. You know, country like you know Texas and and Arizona and and sort of you know um, uh, you know Colorado. Do you see? Do you feel that that some of the you know rules you know typically they kind of start in California and kind of go go east. Do you feel that on the environmental side also some of those policies and just a sort of thought process of of how to approach this is also moving moving along. Yes, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, that the West Coast and, and California really pioneers um, some of the efforts around environmental management, uh, regulation and stewardship. Uh, but, you know, and not only, there are certainly other states that have been leaders in that, but we also influence um, the federal level. Uh, and so I, I think you see that impact. But as you and I discussed, I also think we're seeing... Um, just an ethos from companies, from, from our own employees, from our next generation that says we want these principles of sustainability uh, integrated into, you know, our planning, into our projects, into our products. So I do feel like we're starting to move beyond regulation and that business is leading that effort. Uh, you know, they have to comply, of course, and they're doing what they need to there. But I think they're actually getting ahead of that. Yeah. Are you satisfied with how much business is leading that? I mean, one would argue in some states, they're allowing business to do a whole lot of things that maybe, you know, long term, we're going to look back and be like, why did we do this? And so I'm just also, I'm just also curious, you know, you know, I, I know some companies are obviously very attentive to this, but overall, in your experience, um, you know, do, do you find comfort in knowing that business is driving this versus um, you know, some agencies, you know, throughout the states and government? Yeah, that's a really fair question. I, I take, um, I'm encouraged by seeing business lead, but I, but I agree with you. I think, I think regulation still makes quite a bit happen. And I still think we're moving from rather siloed views of how we manage our resources, air quality over here, water, um, you know, and, and and all of it needs to come together for sustainability. So uh, regulation still plays a role, and uh, and I think not to go you know into too much detail, but this whole fight over the definition at the federal level of waters of the U.S. 
which really relates <laughs> right. to wetlands. And I mean, right. that is a really good example of it is impactful it on on development and developable space. So I understand, you know, the intense focus on it, but but we don't have a coherent yet obviously well accepted set of regulations. And those wetlands are incredibly important for so many um, natural systems functions and therefore for our, you know, community functions. So uh, I look forward to us continuing to push to get that right. So it's not just a constant litigated battle. Yeah. I'm always curious to sort of learn about, you know, some of the projects that companies have done. Are, are there some anecdotes and things that you could share from, you know, your, you know, a couple of decades of, you know, work in this space about, you know, how this has evolved and uh, just illustrate maybe sort of some of the complexities around this? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, I want to um, maybe shift to what, what my particular uh, area of experience has been, which has been water. So as I mentioned, you know, started as an ocean-loving um, teen and, and kind of moved towards understanding estuaries and doing some study in that area. But I really ended up in this environmental consulting business working on our plumbed water system. So with water, wastewater, and water recycling agencies. And I think that's one place for sure where I've seen quite a lot of um, – you know, evolution, and I'll say revolution. So, of course, the droughts in the West, um, you know, nothing like necessity forcing uh, conservation and real innovation around how we save water. But the connection with commercial real estate and uh, the development community, they, they have made through regulation, but also through necessity, just incredible strides in building in uh, much more water efficiency into their projects. Right. Um, so, you know, so I think there was a really, uh, I mean, instructive combination of regulatory pressure, economic pressure with the cost of water rising, um, and, and just some innovation in that space. So working on things like um, the, the Google development at Derridon Station uh, Brisbane Baylands, you know, a very large um, proposed development uh, down the peninsula in the Bay Area. I mean, a really high bar was set for what they had to accomplish in terms of uh, minimizing the need for water uh, because, you know, because it's a scarce resource and a costly resource within California. So I think those are some good examples of where I've seen good progress. Yeah, and and these are um, not little issues. I mean, I think um, when you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, I had mentioned that I, you know, lived in Monterey County at one point, and you know, building anything in Monterey, you know, involves also acquiring water credits. So if you don't have a certain amount of water credits, you can't, you know, build another bedroom or add a bathroom or something like that. Um, we've seen over the last few years with uh, you know severe drought. Uh, throughout the throughout the Western United States, you know, there's lack of water, which is now impacting hydroelectric power generation, and all of these other things are kind of you know connected. And and so I I guess I don't know if I have a question other than that to sort of say water is really important, and um and I think it's you know one of those things that that especially in California it's uh, really. Um, an acute issue that that maybe some others throughout the you know country don't don't see as much right right 
Right. Well, uh, I mean, yes, and you know, certainly the the drought is is gripping um, the, the entire you know Western states, and it, it sort of varies on who's a hotspot. But you know, from from Colorado West, um, and and really even the Midwest uh, has has really been experiencing notable drought conditions. So California has its own its own particular and fairly acute, you know, cycle of this right now, but it, it is spreading in terms of our understanding that one, um, you know, our, our, our estimates of how much water our natural systems could yield, um, we're, we're getting better information about we might have had too, too short a view of that and overestimated our Colorado River system, our Sacramento River system, and, you know, and with climate change and our own increasing demand on these systems, uh, we need a much more sophisticated view of that. But that said, you know, population has been growing in California and elsewhere while per, per capita usage has been going down. So that, that's the right answer. It's just like we have to do more with less. And uh, that's where you've seen the innovation, right? You know, recycling, water reuse. Right. We're headed towards direct potable reuse, which will be a huge breakthrough for this country um, to to have that level of sophisticated ability to manage our water resources that we can, you know, take wastewater and bring it back into our potable water system rather than use it and dump it and get some more and dump it. That this will be an incredible breakthrough for us. Is this a technical challenge, you think, or a cultural challenge, or maybe a little bit of both? Maybe regulatory it's, it's definitely even? a little bit of most, all, all, all three, but we are, we are piloting projects, and we are on the cusp. We're doing, you know, the state uh, and, and other places across the country are doing indirect potable, but uh, Southern California in particular is a real leader in this, and it, it's, it's certainly a few years off, and they're taking all the precaution and doing all the right steps and studies San Diego is a leader on this. It, we're very close to to being able to do this safely, um, and and again, that will just be just a huge breakthrough in how we manage our water supply resources. It'll affect energy use. We spend a tremendous amount of energy to uh, move water around to our communities, treat it, dump it, go get some more. As I say, so it's it's uh, you know interwoven with energy conservation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. just like in the movie Dune, I, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Just like exactly. I'm, exactly. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. So that I had to, yeah. I had to bring it up. There um, you go. Yeah, Leslie. One of the things that that was interesting to me, you know, when you said how you know you you actually grew up in the in the in the seventies and watched uh, uh, Jacques, Jacques Jacques Cousteau with his with his you know ship kind of you know. Um, you know, traverse the oceans um, and raise awareness about, you know, helping Earth and that kind of stuff. I mean, have the last 40 years kind of been, you know, have you watched them in kind of agony because we've just gone, gotten worse and worse in this kind of thing? I mean, I mean, I sort of say that as sort of a half joke, but at the same time, is, is there, is there, anything positive that you've seen, uh, whether it's in the commercial real estate industry or other industries as, as, as a whole that you kind of feel, you know, there's, there's hope here. Yes. Well, you, you are really touching a nerve and I will, I will circle back on that because I have been reflecting to, uh, you know, on, on some of the, 
the things I experienced as we all did it, that were here in the 70s and 80s and just going, huh, a lot of this looks like it's still with us. And I mean environmental issues, I mean social justice issues, and I'm like, wow, while we have definitely made progress, you know, we need to break out of this eddy and, and, and really accelerate our progress here. So, Yes, I do have hope. I have seen in the areas that, that ESA and other colleagues work in, you know, our ability to understand and, and have some advances around river and wetland restoration, starting much more to design with nature. And uh, I will credit our team, you know, 20, 30 years ago, who, who really started pushing this design with nature and not against it. They were real pioneers. And you see a lot of uptake all the way to the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, our major environmental institutions are talking about design with nature and let's, you know, let's work with this because we'll have better outcomes. So I think that's true in, in our cities as well as in our natural environment. It gives me hope. But we, we need to accelerate our progress. There is just no doubt about that. And we need to stop siloing these issues. Um, and, and I see that. I see progress being made. And I, I just want to be a, an actor in accelerating that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the things when we moved here that I, that I found out about was there is a, there's, a, there's a local kind of, you know, rating that's applied to certain, you know, businesses and um you know, you know, uh, companies of buildings and it's the salmon, you know, it's like specific to the, you know, salmon rating. Right. And, and it basically measures the, you know, negative impact or positive impact that your business has on, on salmon, given whether you, you know, put stuff in the water and it affects, you know, how they live and that kind of thing. Are these things, you know, that to me was interesting because it's a, it's a sort of hyper local kind of movement around this. And I'm sort of curious, is is one way to you know fight this and be more cognizant about the impact this local approach where you know it's salmon in the Pacific Northwest but it's I don't know an, an owl somewhere else or a bear somewhere else um, have have you seen success there? Yes, I do think you have to make it local. I have to you have to make it local. You have to make it personal. Um, you know, one one thing I, I again talking about the the developers and the development community and cities, I mean, and the work that we do, like that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where, that's where policies and all these really nice ideas, like that, you know, you either build them into the projects you're doing and the plans that you're making and the way you implement these or you don't. And I feel like that's where the hits and misses come from. So I do think it is uh, imperative that we that we work with the the local and we make it local and personal. But to your point, um, and and you know, salmon really is rightly so so iconically, you know, signature of the Pacific Northwest. But I I will say for good reason. It's because it's in the water that flows across and defines that whole landscape. And those aquatic systems, our rivers, our wetlands, um, you know, the mud puddles we fight over, I mean, they are really important um, connective tissue in, in how and, and in determining whether we have literally a healthy environment, healthy water quality, healthy air quality, you know, enjoyment of our environment, natural beauty that we want to be around, um, 
So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me, even, even in California and particularly Southern California where, yeah, we're semi, you know, arid, we're a desert. Water still defines us. Yeah. And um, it's because it ties together whole huge landscapes in a process that is part of our natural cycle. So, you know, we don't, we don't do well to kind of cut that up and ignore it. So I, I think you guys have this great, you know, iconic um, symbol in the Northwest right. with the salmon. Uh, but it, but it, it, it is really foundational to the health of that whole region. And I think for all of us to find what can we latch onto that might give us pride and drive to take care of our local region is a great idea. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned sort of Southern California and how, you know, water, water shapes it. And to go back to my movie metaphors here, I remember the movie Chinatown with Jack Nicholson, right? Oh, yeah. And Faye Dunaway, <laughs> yeah. right? Which was yes. you know, apparently happening in the thirties, um, you know, a hundred years ago. And, you know, water was an issue back then. Right. So certainly, certainly a big kind of, you know, kind of, you know, political thing. And it's, and it's only going to get more, relevant, I would argue. Um, where we are today with, you know, technology and data collection across, you know, everything that we do, um, I imagine uh, this is a big deal for you guys also. Now, you know, it's not just sort of something that we can, you know, talk about in a in a sense that you, you know, believe kind of, you know, politically uh, that certain things are, you know, right, but now there's actually data behind it. And you guys have made an acquisition recently, right? So tell us a little bit about sort of how important this is for you as an organization and what what does that mean for you going forward? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking about that. And I just think on, you know, on, on behalf of your uh, development community interests, I mean, we all... Uh, for compliance reasons, for planning reasons, we have to collect a lot of data. We have much better tools. We have greater sophistication of how much drones and computer models and satellite imagery. So we can get a lot of data and we can, and we have to report a lot of data. But the question is, what does it all mean and how does it inform, you know, good decision making and timely action? So ESA has been part of that ecosystem, you know, collecting data, getting more sophisticated tools to visualize that data. And you're right, we just at the end of uh, 2021 made an acquisition of a tech firm called Sitka Technology Group out of Portland, out of the Northwest, but working across the U.S. And uh, this is a group of folks who really dedicated their software engineering, um, knowledge architecture, development tech skills, specifically to natural resource management and sustainable community endeavors. So how to get, literally for some of our agencies, they have you know, spreadsheets and filing cabinets and just how to get that digitized and just move people into the digital age and into the cloud. But, you know, that's like step one is building more sophisticated filing cabinets. Step two is what's that data showing you? What should you do about it? How do we take it to the resource managers, the city managers, the, the flood control managers and say, Here's what it's showing you. So a couple of, you know, a couple of examples, uh, Sitka Tech developed um, in combination with some other consultants, a web, um, web architecture for Orange County Public Works in Southern California so that all the people who uh, have to do stormwater regulation, and that's pretty much every large property owner, 
could have a place to uh, put in their regulatory information and report their information. The regulated, the regulators can find what they need and the community also has transparent access to this to see who's doing what kind of stormwater management, who's doing green infrastructure, are they on, you know, are they on schedule? What's the whole build out of what, what's required in our community? So yeah. that's one example. You know, a second example is we're working for the California Department of Water Resources. And they're running the big state water project that delivers water to, you know, many communities and agricultural areas across California. But they have a tremendous responsibility for fisheries management. And we are getting much more sophisticated tools to help them visualize where are the fish, when are they there, why are they there, just much more sophisticated capability to try to manage, you know, sensitive populations like the Delta smelt, which, which, which people are saying may actually already be at the point of extinction. But we have endangered salmon species, salmonids as well. And the faster we can get better information about how to protect and enhance these communities, the better, right? It, 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 it's important for those species. It's important for the health of the delta. And it's really impacting water supply delivery. There's no doubt about it. So everybody wants to apply best available science as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I think data, big data and tech management is, is going to unlock some of that opportunity. And hopefully also provide great resources, right? For you know, yes. developers, uh, counties, yes. cities, right? Yeah. All of these other no. things. So they can Absolutely. guide that, right? When you look at the development uh, footprint of what's happening, as we were just talking, in San Jose, in downtown San Jose, I mean, it's multi-block. It's going to be transformational. It's going to be multiple developers implementing a large-scale plan. They're all going to have their own unique permit conditions, as well as some overriding conditions. So a database system that can just manage that workload and try to streamline it, everybody appreciates that, you know, time and money just this are important resources as well in getting these projects done. So uh, uh, we're expecting and we're seeing that these are really streamlining tools that I think developers will, will appreciate as well. Yeah. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, you know, this podcast kind of started as a you know reaction to COVID and how COVID is changing businesses across the sort of commercial real estate spectrum. I, I don't want to sort of focus on how COVID has impacted you guys directly, but I would love to understand kind of since 2020, if my understanding is, you know, correct, um, the pandemic has been a kind of a great accelerator of trends within you know all industries, every any you know everything that we do, everything that we were doing a little bit of in 2019, yes. we're doing more of today, right? Yes, in a right. sort of a new way, a different way. And I'm you know curious as a you know leader of your organization, what has that done for you guys? You know, have you guys you know automated things? Have you you know do you make decisions faster, better, rely more on you know technology? Um, where has it moved the needle for you? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it totally was a great accelerator and, and a big um, wake-up call and a big opportunity. So a couple of things. There's no doubt about it. We have a tremendous um, tech team and IT team, and they were really moving us, uh, we thought, in a good pace 
you know, into the future, up into the cloud and, and really upgrading our tools and capabilities. And, you know, we just did it overnight once COVID hit. Um, and we had server farms like other, you know, all other businesses do. And we got out of there and we got up into the cloud and it just made our information sharing and, and work delivery just, just so much more effective and so much more flexible and resilient. So it greatly, um, accelerated that in terms of a digital transformation, but frankly, it already, it also pushed so many of us. Um, you know, to just get competent in the virtual environment, like immediately, yeah. because we you were, we were, you know, <laughs> right. you have to, yeah. <laughs> you have to, and it's been a great thing. And we'd already been uh, managing our travel uh, budgets and our travel time and our GHGs and trying to be really thoughtful about for our own business meetings, how much do we really need to fly around? So we'd already been outfitting our conference rooms to have more effective virtual meetings, but again, I think for a lot of us, just our, our, our human skills, our you know, behaviors um, really got on board with the virtual environment. So now I think the big conversation is how do we swing back to our offices? Um, we do, we've, we've kind of called our, our future hub and spoke. So we absolutely see preserving uh, and taking advantage of the flexibility that we have because people can work remotely. So we're not asking all of our people to come back into offices five days a week when that's, you know, safe and possible. But we really want to leverage um, their ability to work remotely with some need and desire for us to have gathering centers where we do our collaborative work. We just build our social capital. Uh, we meet our clients. You know, so that's going to be our hubs, our offices. I'm sure we'll reorganize those some. We've got people who want to be in the office three plus days a week, but we have other people who are like, I'm, I'm fine with occasional uh, right. or largely remote. And that's, that's going to be fine. They, you know, I want to, I want to insert here, we're a 100% employee owned firm. So we were already really kind of a distributed de- decision-making um, ownership model. So this, this uh, distributed hub, you know, virtual work at home uh, is fine for us. We, we put a lot of trust and responsibility on our employee owners. Um, so I think this, this uh, work at home flexibility or work remote is, is just another piece of that. Has it given you access? Has it given you access to people that maybe you didn't have access to, you know, before and now, especially with your acquisition of the firm in, you know, Portland? Um, yes. You know, are, are are you geographically more mobile because of that as well? Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. I think it'll let us, um, you know, draw talent from other markets where it and geographies, as you say, that might not have been as obvious to us. I think it's allowing us to keep people who have wanted to move to other locations. And, you know, we're navigating uh, like all those uh, you know, factors of, okay, but when do you need to be back in an office to see your team or to see your client? Or do we have other people on the ground who can kind of pick up that activity? Um, but it, it, I, I think there's a lot of upside to that. Absolutely. And especially, well, I, in certain, you know, in certain technical specialties and tech being one of them, having a broader market to, to draw employees from is really beneficial. I mean, you can only appreciate if you're trying to recruit in the Bay Area or in the Northwest, these are just tech-heavy, competitive markets. So it's really wonderful to be able to broaden where we consider bringing talent from. Yeah. As an employee-owned 
company, I imagine uh, you guys have probably spent a lot of time and energy trying to define your you know diversity and equity and inclusion, right? Um, you're obviously a you know female leader, which is always great to see you know in the in the in the industry, um, especially on the on the sort of in, you know on the engineering side of things, right? Tell us a little bit about that path for you guys, and sort of how how important has it been for for your organization? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. And you know, it's interesting. I want to go back to when I joined ESA. Just a quick anecdote, but I will um, I will give ESA credit for being um, really gender balanced uh, back even in the eighties. And I it had a great reputation as a firm. I. You know, I did a lot of information interviews to find out where I might want to work or where I should apply. And I saw some very senior leaders from ESA, women leaders, speak at conferences. And I didn't have sort of a criteria that says, oh, I got to work for a company that, you know, is 50-50 male-female. But there was no doubt that representation of people, of women in leadership roles was attractive to me. And I really can understand and the importance of representation in leadership roles matters. You can see yourself growing there. So just fast forward to today, you know, ESA in 2016 initiated a, a diversity committee and said, hey, we really need to accelerate and ramp up our efforts here on this. And of course, you know, by 2020, this had just become uh, an urgent social issue for the for the country. So we have greatly accelerated what we're doing. And I would say uh, this was an imperative for our employee owners. They were like, this is important to us. We want to be part of this. We are underrepresented in the BIPOC community, in our industry, and in our firm. And we, we, we want to move this forward. And, and not just diversifying our staff, but really challenging our unconscious bias and working on inclusion and belonging. We did a cultural assessment with a third party outside, you know, firm that came in to work with us. And and we got some really honest feedback about, hey, you know, there are some culture norm setters here and not everybody fits into that um, norm. And you need to broaden kind of the view of, of what is going to belong at ESA. So, I'm really proud of us. We have a lot of work to do, but we're we're working on this on all fronts. Yeah. I have a couple of kids that are in the sort of Generation Z cohort, if you will, yes. Um, yes. who are hyper aware of the environmental impacts that, you know, you know, uh, the baby boomers and the Xers and the Ys yeah. are leaving for them to clean up. Um what would your advice be to you know people in in that cohort, which by the way is now entering the workforce? So th- these yes. will be the future leaders of our industry. Yes. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think it is a great time. Um, one, I, as I kind of mentioned, I think they are actually sort of drivers of the political will around some of this. They want it in their products. They want their brands to be on board with, you know, social and environmental issues. They want their companies to do that. And and as you mentioned earlier, this is, you know, this is not spread everywhere across the country. But I do think that generation is like, yeah, I expect that. I I expect that. And I want to see the commitment that this company has, you know, to to these integrated issues of sustainability and social justice. So, one, I appreciate the force that they are. 
And two, I love seeing at ESA, you know, we're four or five generations of multi-generational workforce. Um, I think the good news is for people, if they're interested in this field, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to be had and there are job opportunities. So um, that wasn't true when I came out in a recession in the mid 80s. There wasn't a lot of work at that time and I just persevered and got in. But there is now. So I will, you know, I'll recommend consulting. It's a great um, varietal uh, set of work that you get into. You work on a project, some work for a year. I've had some projects I've worked on for 10 years. But you're going to get exposed to, you know, a lot of different communities and issues and projects. So I'm, I've, I've enjoyed consulting all these years. And if you like variety and service to community, um, it's, a, it's a great area to work in for sure. And I will say that ESA and I think, I think a number of our firms, you know, we invest quite a bit in our folks because they are ESA. They, they are ESA to all of our clients they do the work directly with the clients, so they're deserving of a lot of investment and a lot of attention. Yeah. Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, stay safe and best of luck uh, in this uh, new year. Yeah, I appreciated the conversation, Vlad. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.